Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. And, well, we go up and down the East Coast from Miami all the way to Northern Canada, all the way to Northern Europe. And we have a great show for you today. And uh, we have a loaded uh, uh, studio audience with us today. We have Judge Richard Weinberg. We have uh, uh, Ed Cox, former, uh, uh, well, former first husband, or you know, second husband, uh, married to Trisha Cox in 10 years, and Trisha Nixon, and 10 years GOP chairman of New York, former governor of the state of New York, uh, David Patterson, Laura Coron, the former, also, all these former, former, again, <laughs> for, former uh, Nashua County executive, John Katzenmatidis, Jr. Who's current. Current. Not current, former current anything. Chief Investment Officer for the Red Apple Group. And Tony Carbonetti, former Chief of Staff to Rudy Giuliani. And, and uh, we've got a great show for you today. Laura, what do we have? I'm really excited. So, uh, actually, our, for the first person that we're speaking to today is Mario Gabelli. Welcome to the show, Mario. A legendary name? Yes. Well, uh, he's a legendary investor. He's a stock picker without parallel. And he's so great that Fordham University actually named their business school after him. So he's the guy we want to talk to about the stock market. Mario, I was looking forward to, to talking to you and uh, finding out uh, as the world turns, which way are we going? Uh, I had I had big arguments with my friend Larry Cudlow, who's on our show all the time and uh, and has a show on WABC. Which way is the world turning, Mario? Uh, John, thanks to you and Laura, and thanks for all you've accomplished and all you've done for so many, and uh, a great lineup of individuals that I have had great respect for. John, so I grew up about uh, a few miles west of where you grew up. I grew up in the Bronx. You grew up in Greece. so uh, I grew up on 135th Street, <laughs> right by City College. Yeah, well, you you know, you were in a rich neighborhood. I was on Batgate Avenue on 175. <laughs> Some of you may not know what that is, but uh, it's like Orchard Street uh, in the Bronx until the uh, Cross Bronx Expressway. But the rest of the world does it. From my point of view, I look at things with a great deal of optimism. I started my firm when the Dow was 1,045 years ago. I started as a, a research person. And I cover autos, farm equipment, conglomerates, movie and entertainment, and a very simple thing. Whatever you drink anywhere in the world, our team covers it. We have offices around the world. And uh, from the point of view of the economy in the United States, look, three years ago, we never thought about infection. And that came from China. Uh, A year ago, we never thought about invasion. And that came from Russia. So always there's some uncertainty in the world, and uh, the United States with the free market system, uh, with the rule of law, with all the problems, with meritocracy, with all the challenges, uh, we've been able to overcome that. Uh, The idea is to innovate and come up with new ideas and uh, allow that to happen. So I'm really optimistic, uh, not short term. Short term, the Fed is, uh, John, he's going to try to raise rates. He's going to keep it up. He's going to run off the tri- uh, a trillion dollars of uh, uh, debt that he took on for three years ago at the rate of $95 billion a, a, a month. Uh, he's going to try to give reduce aggregate, that is, slow down the economy as best as he can. And so we're dealing with that. So how bad is bad? How long is it going to be bad? How good is good? And what's the uh, – a year from now, John, we're looking at 2025, just like I'm looking at 2024, and I'm very optimistic. I uh, I agree with you. Uh, uh, I've been yelling uh, at Jay uh, Powell on uh, 
the various shows on television and on radio that uh, uh, the problem was uh, uh, that the price of oil went from 55 to 125, and that's what caused the inflation. And by raising interest rates, he is destroying the real estate market, which is 20% of uh, the market in the United States. Well, from my point of view, uh, one has to adjust. When I started in the world in the 1960s, I bought a, a house for $30,000. I borrowed the money, uh, and I got a mortgage at 6%, and I thought it was terrific. So, you know, the, the, the other problems are I can only deduct the interest now up to such amount. I can't take state and local income taxes deductions against my income. So if I'm an individual in places like New York and other places, what do I go to? Nashville? Do I go to Austin? Do I go to Miami? Uh, where should I locate? And that hurts people in the, uh, certain cities like New York. Mario, in the last 24 months, 484,000 taxpayers out of uh, the 20 million uh, uh, people in New York moved out. And if they keep moving out, who's, uh, how are they going to solve uh, pay, pay, the, pay the bills? Yeah, we uh, there is an ch- economic challenge of 101. Uh, so from my point of view, uh, look, I'm uh, uh, also worried about, uh, obviously, the notion that you highlighted. In 1972, the Shah of Iran said, hey, you know, we got to ra- – uh, not Iran, I'm sorry. Uh, Yamani uh, said we're raising oil prices from 3 to 10. There were gas lines. We reduced our reserves in case of a challenge from uh, 600 million barrels to 300 million. That's rough numbers, John. And uh, – and when we sold some of them to China, I understand. Whatever. The point is that we have no reserves. Uh, secondly, if the price of oil, because there's some concerns about Iranian nuclear capabilities and the price of oil sh- spikes up, uh, we are going to have another ongoing challenge. And so uh, from my point of view, I look to invest in areas that have been underinvested in that need to be accomplished on a short-term basis. And then on a long-term basis, you know, we need gas coming into New York City. We need uh, pipelines of gas uh, to be delivered from the uh, uh, places in Pennsylvania and the places uh, and make uh, individuals uh, of, uh, while we're transitioning to other fuels. There's so much to go on, uh, whether I – and talk about uh, sports. Uh, the Atlanta Braves is one of my favorite stocks because somebody's going to buy it. And uh, – you know, the guy Moreno for the L.A. Angels just backed out of selling his, and he was going to get a fancy price. You know, the, uh, the speculation about the Washington Nationals, the Washington Commanders, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things you can make money on while we have this world of uncertainty. My son is sitting here. Uh, he's a chief investment officer for our company. And, John Jr., you had a question. Uh, it's a, it's an honor to meet you, uh, Mario. And, I look forward to seeing you in person. Yes, absolutely. And um, just kind of stepping back for the general investment landscape uh, post-global financial crisis when the, after the Fed hit the uh, kind of monetary gas pedal, passive investing became all the rage and, and people looked at active stock picking and, and started to you know put questions out. But it, now it seems that might be changing in this environment. I'm curious what your uh, prospective returns are for the next 10 years is not for, you know, personally investing, but generally is active investing coming back. I, look, uh, my own reaction is the following. I, I uh, started buying stocks when I was 13. I used to hitchhike from the Bronx up to a country club in Westchester County. And the guys that were specialists came up late and I said, wow. So I started buying stocks at the age of 
before the broker knew how old I was. And uh, but I hope the statute of limitations has passed. Um, basically, uh, you know, from my point of view, owning a piece of a company that people come to work and work their uh, fannies off, uh, a good business, a good management at a cheap valuation. So, uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with someone owning in quotes an index fund. I think they'll make 6 to 8%, uh, hopefully an actively managed uh, guys like us in the world that we live in. Listen, the last six months, people were selling stocks that they didn't want to own because they wanted to take tax losses for reasons, uh, or they wanted to, and that was gone. Like, you take Warner. Warner's located now in Manhattan. Uh, Discovery, uh, Zasloff bought a, a business called Warner Brothers, and I uh, put it together. The stock got hit down to $9.5 because of tax selling. The stock today, three weeks later, is 15 and so is it an index fund? So you're right. Over the next 10 years, I believe that if you own a passive index fund, uh, think of it another way. I started my firm in 1977. The Dow was 1,000. Today it's 35,000 plus or minus. 45 years from now, it's going to be a million, and it's going to grow less than it has over the last 45 years. So let's not be short-term as <clears throat> – uh, for the next 10 years, I think you make 6 to 8% on the overall equity markets per year compounded. That, that's great, and, and I appreciate it. And, and just uh, one more question, if I could. Uh, so what do you think the biggest tail risk and, and blind spots are to investors uh, that they're facing this year? Well, I think the notion of investors versus traders is what I call patience. Uh, P, that is, think about your needs as an investor in terms of where and what you're trying to accomplish but more importantly, if the market drops 2,000 because something happens with Putin uh, that you don't expect, and I don't want to get on this on radio, uh, but basically you want to be able to sell, uh, hold your portfolio and maintain your uh, liquidity. And so the notion of buying good businesses at reasonable valuations. So what's going to scare you? It's a geopolitical thing. You know, who's got the hyper I don't want to uh, – but there's some, uh, you know – uh, let's say, geopolitical issues that I always uh, concerned about. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Mario. And uh, uh, John, I've got a question. For someone who may not yes. be so sophisticated about the stock market, if you could recommend one stock for someone to buy and hold for the next five years, what would it be? I would think that if you have a grandchild, mm. You have a person that likes baseball. If you like someone that likes football, if you like somebody who likes sports, I would say that if they buy one share of the Atlanta Braves, thirty-five dollars. The symbol is B A T R A. There's sixty-two million shares. It's run by uh, individuals that I've known for that are very conscious of values and they're good people. Uh, I would think uh, you'll have fun watching the games. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Yankees not available. Unfortunately, the Knicks are. Or fortunately, <laughs> you know, I listen, Dolan, uh, you know, I've been in the stock for 40 years. I've owned uh, Cablevision. I mean, you know, you have uh, let's not get into that. So one stock, not the way to do it in life. But on the other side, it's going to be fun. Uh, you're going to be able to buy something that, uh, you know, people say buy crypto because it's not going to have that many more. You're not going to have that many more sports teams. Uh, and if you do, the owners of the existing teams Get a place. So thank you for the question, Laura. Is that Laura? That's Laura, Laura yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, and Mario, I grew up on 135th Street. My father was a busboy. Uh, and the two only two stocks he ever bought in his life in the 1950s. Uh, and he did well. AT&T and Connet. 
Yeah, there's no question that uh, the notion of owning a piece of businesses in a world in which capital can be allocated uh, by managements, and they do dumb things, and they do smart things. But on balance, a, a good management does quite well over an extended period of time. You know, if we were sitting here in 1624, we probably would have, uh, some people would have objected to putting up $24 to buy Manhattan. Well, that was a good deal, I think. That's only a 400 years later. Imagine where we'll be in 400 years. Look forward to us. Someplace on the uh, Starship uh, Enterprise. Uh, Well, you know what? Thank you. I uh, look forward to... uh to uh, thinking about uh, things on a uh, on a positive basis over the next 20 or 30 years. There are a lot of negatives that can go wrong. The press likes to identify those. Clearly, you know, the night we, we like to uh, we know the negatives. And as a value investor and a, a bottoms up, we take a microscope and focus on fundamentals of each company we follow and try to visit these managements. And we can sort out the good and the bad. And some of them are very good, and many are very uh, good, and we're buying stocks with a good valuation. So buy one or two stocks. And, Laura, buy yourself one share of BATRA, which is the voting stock uh, on the uh, – Yeah, and then okay, you can thanks. follow it, and then you can follow it in the real world, which makes it even more fun. Uh, Mario, Ed Cox here. You started off talking about the Fed, and a year ago it was really driving the markets, particularly the growth markets uh, – NASDAQ crashed because of what the Fed was doing, raising interest rates. Whether the Fed uh, in the future and what impact on the stock markets? Well, I think you've got a very good point, and I'm privileged to say hello. Uh, but independent of that, what happens is the following. If I promise to pay you a million dollars five years from now, and you can make zero on your returns for the next five years, you know, maybe you'll pay me 980000 But if you can make 5% in T-bills, uh, you're going to pay me uh, eight, 750 or 8000 So the notion of rising interest rates to a level that I've been accustomed to, that the world has been accustomed to, if I look at the last 100 years, what is inflation going to be? Can they get it down to 2 or 3%? Uh, are they going to be able to do that? And then what does that do to interest rates? So what it does is has a headwind to valuations in the stock market, and the market is adjusting very quickly and very appropriately. So... And then you had companies that uh, were growing in terms of uh, promises for the future, hopes for the future, but they had negative cash flow. That means they lost cash every year, and they had a lot of leverage, and they thought they could always borrow money cheap. And those stocks have been hurt dramatically, whether it's a Carvana or something else. I don't want to get into any specifics, but there are many of them. So, you know, the Fed is doing what they were, were a little late, they're learning how to do it, and I would stay, uh, you know, damn, uh, stay the course. And I understand the impact on cap rates on real estate, and I understand that. Uh, but the real estate guys have other issues in markets like New York, but they don't have the same issues. I was just in Dallas. I was just somewhere else. Uh, booming areas, and uh, even with higher cap rates. Yeah, we're going to be getting into that real estate conversation with Kathy Wilde in a little bit. Yes. Mario Gabelli, thank you for coming on. And I, I look forward to having another conversation with you in the near future. And uh, we both came up in, in poor neighborhoods. Oh, stop bragging. <laughs> God, God bless you. And uh, thank you for uh, your input. Legendary investor, 
Mario Gabelli, and the Fordham uh, Business School is named after him. That's exactly right. Uh, and also, I like the optimism that he gives us I in like this world optimism. of doom and gloom. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. I like Love optimism. It. Thank so, you so much. Thank you. Uh, next up, we're going to we're, have a... We're going to take a break first, we're and then we're going to have... And then we're going to have... It's going to be a very high-level conversation about marijuana. We're going to be very blunt about it uh, <laughs> with with Dr. Kevin Sabet, uh, who has written a book called Smokescreen. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Cats at Night. It's Laura Curran in with John Katsimatidis, the host with the most. We also have with us Judge Weinberg, uh, Tony Carbonetti, Ed Cox, and Governor, always Governor to me, David Patterson. And on the line, we, we have with us Kevin, uh, Dr. Kevin Sabat. Dr. Sabat, welcome so much to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a great, great panel you have. Thank you. So your your newest book is called Smokescreen, What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know. So uh, tell us in 30 seconds or less what your book is about. Well, it's about how there's a massive marijuana industry that our country is underestimating and not for the good. Uh, today's pot is not your Woodstock weed. It's much stronger than it used to be. It's, it's, it's really damaging kids. It's damaging adults. It's hurting our future. And uh, it's, I mean, anyone who walks down the street in New York can tell you it has completely changed the, the dynamic of our city in the last four years. And uh, we're here to, you know, I started this with Patrick Kennedy. I'm nonpartisan. I worked for Clinton, Bush, Obama. Um, you know, legalization is a really bad idea. And it goes into why and it goes into how this industry is really fleecing uh, everyday Americans. Well, how about the argument that, hey, people are smoking or taking edibles or whatever it is anyway. Why not regulate it? Make sure there's nothing bad in it like fentanyl, you know, or all the other stuff, bad stuff out there in the world. And tax. Well, the reality, the reality is we're not regulating it, whether it's Colorado now in New York or Washington State that's legalized it 10 years ago. It, it, no state is able to regulate it. There's additives, molds, pesticides, bacteria. I interview people in my book who used to, who actually worked in the marijuana industry are telling me about how these labs do their tests. It's a farce. It's all about money. Uh, they, they don't really know what's in it. Uh, and we're not going to be able to regulate it out of existence. We, we tried regulating drugs. It's called opioids, uh, where you had to get, you know, Ray was very regulated, and look what happens. And so the issue is today's marijuana quintuples your risk of psychosis if you use it daily, and there are more kids using it now daily than there ever has been before. So I just think we need to slow down. I don't want to put people in prison. I'm not saying, you know, we need to stop and frisk everybody and throw them in jail and give them a record. But our choices are not, you know, sort of strict enforcement or, you know, gummies, edibles, and allowing the tobacco industry, you know, back into our lives, essentially, which is what's happening right now. Doctor, it's Tony Carbonetti. I, I agree with you. I am, I've actually never smoked pot in my whole life. And people don't believe I was born and raised in New York City, never smoked pot in my whole life. Um, but that's besides the point. What I never understood is why, if the government was going to start doing this, yeah. we've basically had partners with the tobacco industry for the last 100-plus years. Why not go to the tobacco growers and say, okay, we're going to do it federally. What's the first thing they do with a pack of cigarettes after they, they, they get the federal tax? They know how much is out there. They know where it's going. I mean, at least try to control it. If you, I, I wasn't in yeah. favor of legalizing it, but once I yeah. lost that fight, try to control it. Right. Well, the, the reality is, um, first of all, the federal government doesn't actually want to do this. It's illegal. I, uh, I, I know, but doing, why do states right, get to pick and choose? They don't. They, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. But the federal government let it happen. 
Well, they shouldn't. They did let it happen, and they shouldn't have. I mean, it's just as, you know, for legally, uh, someone should go run an initiative and legalize cocaine or crack or meth. Right. I can um, just put it on the ballot right. and take any federal law I want and, and, and decriminalize actually, it. I, I agree, but we lost that fight. Right. Right. So what I would say is, um, first of all, federally, we haven't lost the fight. So there's still things that the federal government can do to coerce states into really pulling back. Um, again, it's different to decriminalize use versus legalize sale. I would actually worry, to be honest with you, I'd worry about going to t- big tobacco because they lied to us for 80 years about the harms of smoking. They actually are chomping on the bit. They would love to get into marijuana. And many of them are getting into marijuana, by the way. Um, Altria, Philip Morris has invested millions into this. So they're actually already, but I, that actually gives me heartburn because, um, you know, they, they you got to remember t- tobacco has been used for thousands of years by many, many different cultures and generations. And it only became deadly when big tobacco got a hold of it about 100 years ago, 150 years ago, industrial revolution. And we created the cigarette. We created mass marketing. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to make the same mistake twice. And, you know, you're actually in the majority. Over 55 percent of Americans have never you know, used marijuana. So this idea that everyone's using it, everyone always has, actually, that's not the case. And it's the reason why it was a counterculture drug. It was not used by mainstream, still isn't. And I just think we need to slow down. We're going way too fast. New York's a mess. We have 1,400 unlicensed stores, one licensed one. I mean, it's a complete total mess. And no one's doing anything, though. So since we're not doing anything, how do we fight it? Well, well, first of all, I would do a couple things. One, I would not allow public smoking. New York has changed dramatically. People, kids, secondhand smoke, thirdhand smoke. Public housing is a disaster with the, um, you know, poor people are inhaling. This is not helping them. Um, the subways, actually today's marijuana, and I didn't used to say this, but I do now because of the science. Today's high potent marijuana can, can lead to violence. It leads to psychosis and erratic behavior, which can lead to violence. And that's not like the old marijuana where you would just, you know, tune out and listen to music all day. That is not what we're talking about. So I would, first of all, get it out of public view, stop the normalization. Right now it's a free-for-all. And then I would say, okay, yeah, if you're an adult, it's one thing. I would limit the advertising. I would limit it, but we're not doing any of that. Doctor, it's uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. I had the privilege of of running the special narcotics courts in the city for uh, for about seven seven years. And I always believed, based on what was given to me as a presiding judge, that one, it was a gateway drug to right. other drugs. Two, the kids' brains weren't really truly formed until they were 26. That's right. And That's uh, right. Herb Kleber taught me that, by the way, if you knew A wonderful Herb. man. Right. He was one of my mentors. Right. right. And I knew Dr. Kleber very well. He was in the White yeah. House with Clinton. And and the point was, it's a gateway drug. It's a dangerous drug. If I'm driving stoned with grass, I'm just as dangerous to other people on the road as if oh. I was drunk with alcohol, aren't I? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, we know it doubles your risk of a car crash. We know that that limo crash before pre-COVID, you all remember that upstate, that was caused by marijuana. We, we get, There are dozens, dozens and dozens every year, hundreds actually, of crashes fatal that have increased because we've legalized marijuana, whether it's Colorado, New York, wherever. And so you're, you're exactly right, Judge. Um, listen, if you use marijuana, uh, Herb Cleaver and Joe Califano, another great New Yorker, uh, you know, used to say it would increase your risk of using other drugs by tenfold. And they're right. It doesn't mean that everybody who uses other drugs, though, uh, you know, sorry, it doesn't mean that everyone who uses marijuana will go on to it. So I, I know you're, some of your callers might be, wait a minute, you know, a lot of people use it and they don't go on to heroin. That's true. 
But this is the issue. If you use a harder drug like cocaine or heroin or meth, 99 times out of 100, your first drugs were alcohol and marijuana because those are the two easiest to get. And also because you're priming your brain to want to get high. After a while, your brain is sick of alcohol. It doesn't do enough. It's sick of marijuana for some people, not everybody. And for that group of people, it they want a bigger high biologically. And no, you're, Judge, you're right. In fact, yesterday, speaking of a great New Yorkers in this fight, I was at the memorial for the great Dr. Mitch Rosenthal, who you all remember, who started Phoenix House last night. He didn't like what was happening in this either. So I think we have to really watch it. Thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and we want to talk about it some more in the near future. And uh, uh, thank you for telling the people the truth. Uh, Love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to take a break, and we're going to go also to Lou Dobbs for a financial report for today. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. I am delighted to introduce our next guest, Kathy Wild, who is president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. Now, John, you were at an event. It was a phenomenal event. It was at the Rainbow Room. Every important executive of of New York was there, and uh, uh, Kathy Wild, she was the leader of the band. Kathy, you did a great job yesterday. Thank you so much, John. It was uh, a, an exciting morning because it's so good to see New York City back. <laughs> well, I think it was back. Everybody who's anybody was in that room, and uh, everybody uh, was looking and there was optimism on the stage. You had a few people uh, speak. Uh, you had uh, uh, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs speak. Jamie Dimon was there. Uh, you, you have a new co-chairman for the uh, for the uh, uh, event. Yes, our new co-chair is Albert Vorla, the CEO of Pfizer, who we call our hometown hero. Yes. Pfizer yes. came out with the first vaccine and the first therapeutic for the COVID-19. So was very exciting. And it was uh, good to see um, a lot of old friends that we haven't seen in a while. And uh, and uh, f- I, we have here um, uh, former Governor David Patterson, and he has a few questions for you, Governor. Well, Kathy, uh, as for those of us who unfortunately were not at the event yesterday, what do you think the priorities of the partnership now that everybody's back, but in some ways we're not back? Correct. It, things are uh, Things are back. But they're different, I would say. Um, what, who's not back are the remote workers. We are just wrapping up our latest survey. Of, uh, every quarter we're doing a survey of how many office workers, Manhattan office workers, are back. And it looks like the number is going to be about 55% of on, on the average weekday that office workers are back. This is up from 49% in September, so we're seeing a gradual increase. But most employers are telling us that they think hybrid work will continue through 2023, that they'll get to about 57% of people in the office on the average weekday. But more than 80% of employers, and this is new fact since the pandemic, more than 80% of employers are saying They'll have a hybrid work model where most employees will only be required to be in the office three days a week. So to that end, there are obviously a number of people who just aren't working right now. And then there are a number of people who 
are afraid to come to the to the venue, you know, to the office building. What is the incentive to bring them back? Well, well, let me just say, well, throughout the pandemic, employers have been urging their employees to come back ever since the lockdown was done in was completed in June of 2020. Employers have been actually looking to get people back. And you're right. At first, for the for the first year and a half, we saw that fear of getting on the subway, fear of crime. Uh, fear of the disease were all big factors in why people said they didn't come back. As of the current survey right now in 2023, only 6% of the respondents are saying that fear of anything, crime, disease, whatever, but fear of the subways, only 6% are saying that's a factor. Very encouraging. Overwhelmingly, it is not fear. It is the flexibility of being able to work from home, the convenience, uh, the savings, financial savings, because they don't have to go out for lunch, whatever. So it's, it's, it now has become part of the expectation of one of the benefits of having a job is you don't have to go to the office. But, C- Kathy, it's Tony Carbonetti. It's that trickle-down economy, though, that always kept New York City vibrant. It's the going to lunch. It's the having the after work drink. It's, you know, buying clothes after work. It's, it's things like that that we always relied upon in the city to keep things moving forward and keep growing. You know, Tony, just to, just to make a fine point, um, that's what kept Manhattan business districts vibrant. Actually, People working from home, many of the community business districts in the residential neighborhoods across the five boroughs are doing much better and have have bigger retail sales, more patronage, opening new businesses. We, in the last four quarters, in the last year, we've seen 32,000 new businesses open in New York City. And for the first time ever, most of them are not in Manhattan. You are correct because... I am thinking Manhattan-centric, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, I have uh, my in-laws are in the restaurant and bar business, and the one in Midtown is not doing as well as the one in the old neighborhood, right? The neighborhoods are doing well. But when you look at things like Hudson Yards, where we, you know, years ago, we approved millions of square feet of space, and then we rezoned Park Avenue and Midtown, how much longer is it going to take to grow into those neighborhoods when people aren't going to work anymore? There are a combination of policies. I'm sure you've seen the reports that are being put together by the mayor and the governor on the, on the efforts that are going to be made uh, to basically attract people back, but maybe not for the same reasons. I mean, one problem we still have is business travel and international travel are down. And that was a big contributor to retail and to restaurants, mm-hmm. et cetera, in, in Midtown and Lower Manhattan. So, that's a problem. So it's not just remote work. It's a lot of changes. And people are not just doing remote work. They're also doing remote education. They're doing remote shopping. They're doing remote Seeing the doctors. Care. Exactly. Everything. Remote health care. Yeah. Everything. So what we've done is we've had an industrial revolution into the digital economy in the last three years. And that, as much as the pandemic, has affected everything that's going on, but, but we are really gearing up. As I started to say, the, uh, the planning for what comes next 
is going on hot and heavy. So improving the public realm and converting commercial office buildings, the smaller buildings where it's possible, converting them to residential. Uh, The real estate board just came out a report. There's 20 million square feet of commercial office buildings in Manhattan that could be converted to residential use. And that would also provide us with some additional affordable housing units, which is a very important consideration. So it'll make, and you know, and putting residents in neighborhoods, it makes them 24-7 communities. So we think that Manhattan, midterm, long-term, certainly Manhattan is going to stay valuable property. There is lots of opportunity for what to do in Manhattan. I mean, some people are counting on casinos and marijuana shops. But I'm not a casino on. marijuana fan. <laughs> we always, we've always come back in the past, and we will come back, thanks to people New like York, you. New York always comes back. Totally Ju- agree. Yeah. Yeah. Judge Kathy, it's, it's Richard Weinberg. I want to ask you, what about the empty uh, ground floor space, the brick-and-mortar stores? What do you see happening there in the city? Well, what they're looking at is kind of, is entertainment, arts and culture. I mean, there's, there's lots um Lots of thinking going on. Child care facilities, for uh, which we've got a real shortage of. So I think all of that will work. And as I say, we've had 32,000 new businesses start in the city in the last year. So we've got plenty of entrepreneurs that are hopefully going to take up that space with new exciting things um, that will make New York more vibrant than ever. Um, we, we also had had yesterday at our annual meeting that John was talking about when we opened the conversation, the governor attended, and she gave very encouraging statements about her plans to really invest in solving some of the problems, the issues that we face. So public safety and uh, some of the mental health issues. She's putting a billion dollars in her budget for mental health services that we haven't really had adequate. And an interesting fact, I was at a meeting with the mental health experts from the city last week, and they were talking about, in terms of the mental health population that's seriously mentally ill, that's homeless and in the streets and subways, the estimate is it's about 1,500 people. In a city of almost 9 million people, we should be able to solve this problem. Kathy, Kathy, so much. Uh, thank you so much for the dose of optimism and this great information. Uh, next, we have Jack Wu. Uh, Jack Wu is president of Queens College, and he was here, I understand, for the big Lunar New Year celebration right here at WABC, right, yes, Mr. Wu? we had a big Lunar celebration today in the studio mm-hmm. at WABC, and you'll be able to see the discussions we had and the entertainment we have on uh, the WABC website, wabcradio.com. And uh, uh, are they available yet, or uh, have they been posted? Some of them have been posted. And uh, Mr. Wu, it was a pleasure meeting you this afternoon, and and we we talked about the Asian community. Everybody sitting down is now 17.2% of New York City's population. And growing in the suburbs as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be with you again. Uh, First name is Frank, and I, I try to live up to my name. Frank. Frank Wu. Yeah, it, it's great to be back with you again and uh, happy to be talking as we celebrate the Lunar New Year, which for so many people of East Asian backgrounds, that's the most important holiday of the year. 
And it's interesting now because everybody's saying Happy New Year. Everybody knows it's the year of the rabbit. It really is getting into the rest of the culture, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, it's it's terrific. You know, people don't realize that uh, Asian Americans have been around for 150 years. Some people may know that it was uh, 10 to 15,000 Chinese laborers who were brought over who finished the western half of the Transcontinental Railroad. That's that was right. in 1869. In New York City's Chinatown in Manhattan, boy, it dates back five generations. Wow, that's a big number. And now we have uh, other Chinatowns. We have them in uh, in in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, Flushing, like you know, all over. I mean, they're all over the, the country. That's right. Yeah, I, I live right in Flushing, and uh, that's one of the reasons that, that I am thrilled to be president of Queens College because Flushing, well, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't always the best part of New York City, but it came roaring back because of all the folks coming from Asia, especially that exodus from Hong Kong in 1997. And it's not like not like Asia. It's better because you find people of every background uh, side by side. And so people who are Chinese, Korean, Filipino, and they live right next door to people who are Orthodox Jews, people of Greek background, uh, people who are Latino. And it, there's a, a mixing and a mingling that you're just not going to find anywhere except New York City. Now, uh, Ed Cox here, uh, 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 Mr. Wu, you know, you, you've served all over the country like a lot of the great uh, executives uh, of colleges and universities. You've served in California. You've served in Detroit. Uh, how do you compare Queens to uh, to where you were before? And you've also uh, taught in twice in China. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I was not looking to be a college president. That probably sounds like a funny thing to say since it's the job I have. I wanted to be the Queens College president. I really only applied in the one search. And I'll tell you why. It's because we still believe in higher education as the engine of the American dream. That's how I got here. My parents came as scholarship students. I was born here in the States, but coming full circle. And to be in Queens, the world's borough, it, it really, this is my dream job. One third of our students are immigrants themselves, and another third are the American-born generation of newcomers. That's two-thirds of our students. So we've got about 100 languages spoken on our campus, and it is amazing because these are folks who believe. They believe in the, Ameri- in the American dream and in the miracle that's enabled by higher education, and they're, they're pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. So it's just wonderful to be someplace with so many so many folks who are strivers, who, who want to, to become New Yorkers and, and experience the freedom and opportunity here as nowhere else. Well, so, go ahead. Go, Judge Weinberg, uh, President Wu, let me ask you this question. What are the big challenges facing the Asian-American community as you see going forward? Well, during the pandemic, we saw so much of this violence. And initially, people would say to me, ah, oh, come on, isn't this just random? And we saw these viral videos and and we saw people, elderly women, you know, being shouted at with racial slurs and then bit upon, shoved to the ground so hard their bones were broken, stabbed, shot, shoved in front of subway trains, kicked in the head. It was just mm. terrible. And do I know that every one of those was a hate crime? No, I don't. And we know the most recent two shootings out in California, the perpetrators seem to be Asian themselves. But this is a community that's just been traumatized by people who have have blamed them for, for this virus. And the pandemic was serious business. But the folks walking down the street minding their own business, you know, it includes people, they're not from China, they're they're Filipino, they're Burmese, 
they're Korean. Even in a couple instances, Chicano, but they looked Asian and they got beaten up. And of course, these are our neighbors and co-workers. They're, they're not folks from overseas. Now, don't get me wrong, it wouldn't be right to find a, a Chinese foreign national and beat them up. That would be wrong too. But my point is, when folks get riled up and they get all angry, they don't stop and pause and, and ask to check your passport. They just take it out on you. So past few years have just been tough. And a, and a lot of older folks, they're still in their apartments. They are too scared to even go shopping for groceries because of all this rampant violence. President well, Wooth, thank you so much. John, anything you want to add as no, we I say mean, goodbye? I, I was very impressed to meet him this afternoon. And uh, and thank you for everything you do for all our children. And, uh, and we hope to catch up with you again real soon. I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me back again. Thanks for all you do. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Peter Michalos talking about all kinds of things, including fentanyl and arsenic in food. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Cats at Night. So rounding out our show today, we have Dr. Peter Michalos, and we wanted to get into this slightly uh, nauseating topic of arsenic in food. Dr. Michalos, what's the deal? Well, what happens is that there is something called heavy metals, and one of the things that's not routinely done is called a heavy metal screen, which includes arsenic, lead, and mercury. And it is known that arsenic can be poisonous and can do damage and can also be a carcinogen, and certain cancers are associated with arsenic toxicity. And they're finding, Consumer Reports recently did just sampling food, and they found that a lot of uh, rice, products, including some rice baby cereals, brown rice, and some other foods were found to have levels that were relatively toxic to what they should be. And uh, what they're calling for is to have a real national standard for uh, these products and to try to figure out where it's coming from, because it's also associated with uh, birth defects, cognitive disorders. So if I go to the doctor and I get my, you said, and reproductive problems, I'm sorry to talk over you, but if I go to the doctor and I ask to get my blood work done, can I get a read on this lead, mercury, and arsenic if it's in my blood? Yeah. Is it that well, simple? Well, the problem is a lot of, you know, now that uh, a lot of health systems now are part of these larger systems, they tell people what basic tests to order because a lot of times insurance companies don't want to pay mm. for it. And we know people, and we have to ask for what's called a heavy metal screen, which Mm. includes all three, arsenic and lead and mercury. And when you can find out you have them, then you can get treatment. The first thing is, like, we have friends who have these uh, things that we've told to uh, get checked. They find out they have a high arsenic level. Then they know to abstain from certain things that may contain arsenic or the mercury people, for example, large fish like tuna, for example, shark and things like that. They avoid those, and then their levels come down. But sometimes you have to have G 
chelation therapy, which is a sort of last resort thing. And uh, I've experienced it myself where I was eating a lot of tuna and my mercury levels went high and you get an IV and something called EDTA, which is a chelating agent. And it binds the heavy metals and then you urinate them out and that's how you can reduce the levels because when they're very high, you can have symptoms including rapid heart rate. Sometimes you can get weird tingling on your face. Sometimes you can get uh, anxiety, panic attacks from some of these heavy metals. So these are a, a real problem, and now they're starting to look at it more carefully. So I think we're going to be hearing more about it. I think one of the things, if you have some uh, issues where you have unexplained medical diagnoses, you can ask your doctor, can you please check me for a heavy metal screen? Just like many times, for example, people get bit by ticks and live in an endemic area for tick diseases, and they just check for limes, but they should really ask for a tick panel, which includes babesiosis, ulrichiosis, and other tick-borne illnesses, mm. Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Sometimes they just pick one thing. So sometimes you have to advocate on your own behalf and do these tests. So, and, doctor, uh, many labs now. So, Doctor yeah. David Patterson, suffice it to say, if you're willing to go outside of the process, outside of the regular testing service, you can find out if you've been vulnerable or been affected by uh, these toxins. Yes, you can. And there are even lab companies now that even without a doctor's prescription or visit, you can then order a, a la carte certain laboratory tests and find out what's going on uh, with your you medically. For example, uh, people check cholesterol profiles, but now there's a new test called apolipoprotein A and B that they don't routinely do, but they're finding out in the literature that it might be one of the better markers to predict cardiovascular disease. And we're finding that more and more people are going outside the system to get uh, to advocate on their own behalf. But just try to be careful. Listen to WABC for more health tips. And we're going to talk more about longevity health tips on Sunday's show. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's see. And tune I, in I hope you get better Sunday. faster, uh, Peter. You, you're sounding uh, about the same. No, I'm much better, but thank you. Thank I'm you. getting there. And uh, what do we all stand for? Truth, Truth, justice, and the American American way. God bless America, and we need God's help. Thank you so much. Amen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.